Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 54, Looking Back on Byzantine Domination. So, no new Patreon supporters in the three days since I recorded the last episode. So, consider supporting the show. Even $1 of support gets you access to the History of Bonsko miniseries. It's a three-episode miniseries about the history of the small Bulgarian town of Bonsko. And $3 gets you all the episode transcripts. So, anything you wanted to look back again, check if you needed a refresher, anything like that, you can see all... Minus episodes two and three, the other 50 or so episodes, all available for you to check out. Consider becoming a supporter. Although I've separated this podcast into three, you can call them seasons, they're seasons in, uh, in SoundCloud so far, there's been the first Bulgarian Empire, the Byzantine domination period, and the second Bulgarian Empire. Now, I never did a recap for the Byzantine period because it was pretty short. So this episode is going to be essentially that, a bit late, but a good refresher. So it's going to be a full recap of those nine episodes of everything that happened in roughly the century and a half between the end of the First Bulgarian Empire and the beginning of the Second Bulgarian Empire. FYI, after this, we'll be I'll be doing probably two episodes covering, or doing a recap of the Second Bulgarian Empire, so look forward to that. At the end of the First Bulgarian Empire, in the year 1018, the Byzantines were at the height of their power. Their economic and military power were unrivaled in their greater neighborhood. Peace, peace in the East and these other strengths allowed the empire to crush Bulgaria in the early 11th century. With Byzantine conquest, Emperor Basil II didn't seek to erase all memory of the past and impose some kind of new Byzantine order over Bulgaria. No. The Byzantines attempted to create really as much continuity as possible, giving local nobles the opportunity to retain their titles and positions by working with them. The result was about a decade of peace and calm for Bulgarian lands following their conquest. But then came the Pechenegs. Their raids caused the kind of chaos and economic damage that I've discussed here many times before. You know, I've talked about how disrupting and damaging it is once you have these kinds of nomadic raiders coming in over and over and over. This also led to a withdrawal towards more fortified settlements and the general depopulation of northern Bulgaria. That's between the Balkan Mountains and the Danube. So for a brief time, life was actually probably better under the Byzantines. Things were good. The economy was good. The empire was peaceful. But now bad times are back. Still, eventually these raids slow down, and some Pechenegs actually settle in Bulgaria. The result is that by the end of the 11th century, the Bulgarian economy is kind of picking up again, benefiting really from being part of the Byzantine Empire and having easier access to markets. But this increased prosperity was met with the end of the light hand of the state. 
Around this time, taxes increased, and Bulgarians grew resentful of Constantinople. And not just Bulgarians. The Serbs led a rebellion which massacred the Byzantine army that was sent to crush it. As a result, there was a man named Peter Delian, who claimed to be a son of the last Tsar of the First Empire, and led a rebellion in the year 1040. He quickly took many important cities and defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Thessaloniki. Now, this led to even more uprisings against the Byzantines. However, a former Bulgarian and current Byzantine noble arrived to offer help. He was given command of the army and proceeded to make a foolish attack on the walls of Thessalonica, causing immense damage to his force. Then, for reasons we don't quite understand, he blinded Peter and fled to the Byzantines. Now, Peter, in this case, was the kind of proclaimed new Tsar of the hopefully new Bulgarian Empire. Now, Tsar Peter was blinded and shamed, but still led his army, but was defeated in battle and killed. And so that rebellion ended. Now, at this time, the Seljuk Turks were migrating into Anatolia, massively shifting the balance of power there and marking the beginning of a long decline in Byzantine power in that vital region. So just when the Byzantines needed all their strength to battle the Seljuks, the Byzantines lost yet another army in the deep mountains of Serbia while trying to reconquer those lands. So again, Serbia led its own little rebellion, more or less became independent, and the Byzantines keep trying to recapture Serbia. They keep failing. And so they kind of give up at this point and decide that they are going to allow an independent Serbia to exist. During the following years, Byzantine power slips even more. Its professional army was gradually replaced by mercenaries, due in part to the loss of much of Anatolia to the Seljuks, because remember, Anatolia had been the main supplier of men for the army. And in a desperate need for more money, the empire responded by raising taxes and making itself even more unpopular with many of its citizens. At this time, in the 1060s, a powerful Seljuk leader named Alp Arslan further expanded Seljuk territory in Anatolia, leading the new Byzantine emperor Romanus to rush around the empire putting out fires and attempting to get the empire's finances in order. Eventually, the Byzantine emperor gathers a massive army full of mercenaries and challenges Arslan. The result is a complete defeat for the Byzantines and the capture of their emperor Romanus. Now the emperor is eventually set free, but this loss really breaks Byzantine pa power in Anatolia and opens the way for more Seljuk expansion. Romanus would eventually be blinded and exiled, dying in agony from his wounds. The Byzantines were now under attack everywhere. The Normans took the last Byzantine holdings in southern Italy. The Hungarians ravaged their Balkan territories. The Pechenegs inflicted more devastating raids. The power and the stability of the empire, which had been so strong just a half a century earlier, now seemed a distant memory. Now at this moment, a Bulgarian noble named Georgi Votech sought to take advantage of this chaos and again re-establish a Bulgarian state. He worked with the Serbian royal family as they were related to the last Tsars. They sent the son and heir 
to become a new Bulgarian Tsar, who defeated the Byzantines and proclaimed himself Tsar Peter III. But many Bulgarians refused to acknowledge him and joined the rebellion. Soon, Georgi Wojtek was captured and executed, and within a year, that uprising was also crushed. But the uprisings against the Byzantines really kept coming. The next year, it was the Pechenegs, led by a Byzantine governor, no less. That rebellion ultimately led to a more or less independent Pechenig state on the lower Danube, in lands that were once the heart of the first Bulgarian empire. The result was that even more Pechenig raids and economic devastation came because now the Pechenigs weren't going to raid what were now their lands north of the Balkan Mountains, south of the Danube, so they raided deeper into Thrace, causing even more economic devastation for the empire. Shortly after, another rebellion came from the Byzantine governor of Dyrrhachium. As a result, the emperor was overthrown and replaced by the leader of an Anatolian uprising, another uprising. Then Bulgarian leaders of a religious sect began taking control of the Balkan mountain passes. This sect was called the Paulicians. So in general, at this time, there are just Byzantine uprisings everywhere. Well, Byzantine, non-Byzantine, everyone is rebelling against central authority. But the Byzantines began by attempting to put down that rebellion in Dyrrhachium, gathering Seljuk and Pechenig forces to help them. And it was a close-run thing, but the resulting battle was won by the emperor, and that rebellion was crushed. Or at least it seems so. Because another Byzantine general immediately picked up the standard of the rebellion and kept it right on going. The new version of that rebellion was also put down, but was immediately followed by yet another general proclaiming himself emperor, but this time in Anatolia. The general, who had led victories over the rebels had ha himself, had had enough and decided to make himself emperor. Thus, Alexios Komnenos took control of a crumbling Byzantine state beset by rebellions on all sides. But he was a successful general. He finished off that Anatolian rebellion still not before the Seljuks had taken advantage of the situation and further expanded their control of various cities there. But just as Komnenos finished taking care of those rebellions and kind of stabilized the empire, just at that moment, a Norman army landed on the Adriatic coast of the empire, intent on conquering all of Byzantium. The emperor responded by asking Venice for help. The Venetian navy quickly got in and destroyed most of the Norman fleet, trapping the Normans in the Balkans. Still, the Norman army continued their first move, laying siege to Dyrrhachium. Losing their navy and being struck by plague didn't seem to deter them at all. But after some months, a Byzantine army led by the emperor himself arrived and narrowly defeated, and was narrowly defeated, with the emperor Komnenos barely escaping with his life. The Normans later conquered Dyrrhachium and turned their army to go inland in the direction of Constantinople, taking city after city in northern Greece along the way. However, just at this moment of Norman triumph, all their lands in southern Italy, which they had conquered from the Byzantines a few decades earlier that I mentioned, they all rose in revolt. And northern Italy was simultaneously invaded by the Holy Roman Empire due in part to Byzantine gold, convincing him that this was a great idea. The Norman king had to rush back to Italy to resolve the situation and left his son in charge of the invasion, 
In the meantime, the Byzantines sent yet another army to challenge the Normans, only to be defeated again. But now financial troubles in the Norman camp came to kind of define the situation. They allowed the Byzantines to begin bribing northern Norman leaders to abandon the invasion. This ultimately led to the Norman king's son also returning to Italy to gather more financial resources and continue the invasion after. Soon, father and son both returned to pick up where they left off, but were struck by plague and ended up spending a year on a Greek island until the king himself died. As a result, the Normans had to return home again to handle what was now a succession crisis. And the armies and the wars and all the chaos around who would succeed the king who had just died lasted for five years, allowing the Byzantines plenty of time to retake every single city and all the land that the Normans had just conquered in the Balkans. Now, Emperor Komnenos returned to those Pechenig and Bulgarian religious heretics who had caused desertion amongst his armies and all kinds of trouble during recent campaigns. And so Komnenos led an invasion of those territories and a larger rebellion in former Bulgarian lands. Battles were won and lost by both sides before the emperor engaged in a risky strategy to move his army along the Danube and attack the Pechenegs and Bulgarians from the north. He was surrounded as a result and forced to sue for peace, giving the Pechenegs independence and tribute and ending his attempt to put down those religious heretics. But by 1090, a few years later, in spite of the agreement not to, the Pechenegs joined forces with the Seljuks to combine and form a massive 80,000-man army intent on attacking and taking Constantinople. But luckily for Emperor Komnenos, a new steppe tribe, the Cumans, were willing to take a pile of gold in exchange for sending 40,000 warriors to aid the Byzantines against the Pechenegs and the Seljuks. This force, along with 20,000 or so Byzantines and other mercenaries, attacked the 80,000-strong Pechenig army, weighed down with baggage, women, and children, and massacred them. This defeat marked the beginning of the end of the Pechenegs as a people, as well as in many ways the beginning of the rise of the Cumans as their replacement, as the sort of token steppe nomad tribe dominating this region. Now, Emperor Alexios Komnenos had finally defeated all of his major Balkan opponents, opening up the way for the Byzantines to go on the offensive in Anatolia. Several victories later, and while the Byzantines didn't make any major territorial gains in Anatolia, they did reestablish themselves and stopped Seljuk expansion. All of this was done just in time for the Cumans to invade the empire themselves. Remember, they only fought with the Byzantines before for a big pile of money. Now, the Byzantines were hoping that fortifying mountain passes in the Balkan mountains would stop the Cumans, but they simply bypassed those particular fortified passes. And by the time the Cumans got south of the Balkan mountains, the Byzantines did manage to isolate one group of them and defeat them, but the rest of them were ready for a fight. But at this moment, in a supremely clever move, the Byzantines decided to simply allow the Cumans to raid and steal whatever they liked, and to instead kill them as they attempted to cross the mountains back home, going south to north, weighed down with everything they had taken. This strategy was great for the Byzantines. 
but it also meant that they decided to more or less leave all these former Bulgarian lands between the Balkan mountains and the Danube to the mercy of these raids. As a result, the depopulation and economic hardships of this area got even worse, and around this time, the old Bulgarian capital of Preslav was finally and completely abandoned. The Byzantines then turned back to the Seljuks and asked the Pope for some mercenaries to help aid them in their attempt to push back Muslims in the east. In return, they got the first crusade. But first, before that crusade arrived, another crusade came, the People's Crusade, wherein a hermit gathered this huge army of untrained peasants to sort of meander and pillage its way across the Balkans on their way to Constantinople to eventually retake the Holy Land. The Byzantines ferried this rabble over to Anatolia, where the army was quickly massacred by the Seljuks. Still, the more professional papal army was on its way. When those 35,000 professional soldiers arrived, including one of the Norman leaders who had tried to invade the Byzantine Empire, Alexios Komnenos made a deal, whereby he would transport them and give them provisions in exchange for them handing over any land they took. The Crusaders didn't have much of a choice, and so they swore the oath. Alp Arslan, the Seljuk leader, initially assumed that these Crusaders would be as easy to defeat as the People's Crusade. But a siege of Nicaea quickly proved him wrong. Arslan sent an army to relieve the city, but it was defeated. The siege went on until Emperor Alexios snuck in and took the city with a small group of his own forces right from under the Crusaders' noses. The Crusaders were furious at him for doing this. They had wanted to take Nicaea. They had wanted to, you know, rob the city and take whatever they could. But now it was back in Byzantine hands. Still, again, there wasn't much they could do, and they set off for the Holy Land anyways. On their way, they retook much of western Anatolia for the Byzantines, while the empire itself retook islands in the Aegean, solidifying their control over that region. Overall, this was a huge reversal of fortune. Remember, Emperor Alexios had taken over after a series of rebellions had racked the empire and left it in shambles. Now, it was feeling secure in the Balkans, expanding in the Aegean and in Anatolia. Not too bad. As the Crusaders moved into Syria and began taking cities like Antioch, they began to break apart, with some leaders deciding to establish their own states in these cities instead of continuing on to Jerusalem. But by this time, the Crusaders were far beyond giving anything they took to the Byzantines. They were on their own. So they moved further south and successfully took Jerusalem, establishing a kingdom there and defeating a Fatimid army that was sent to destroy them. But now, most crusaders wanted to go home, and so they did, leaving the kingdom vulnerable. Shortly afterwards, though, a new army was sent to reinforce them. This relief force pillaged Byzantine lands, really pissing off the Byzantines, but first had to go fight the Seljuk Turks, who captured a crusader leader who had made himself prince in Antioch, and so this new army had to go save him before they got to Jerusalem. They retook some territory for the Byzantines before themselves getting slaughtered by the Seljuks. Eventually, the crusader leader who had been captured, Bohemund, the same one who had led the Norman attack on the Byzantines with his father, was ransomed, the ransom was paid, and he was let go. 
He then returned to Western Europe to gather another army, which he used not to reinforce the army of Jerusalem and the king there, but to invade the Balkans at Dyrrhachium again. Once again, the Venetian navy cut them off and the army was ravaged by plague. The backers of this endeavor, endeavor then decided to pull their support, and the Crusaders, if you can call them that, sued for peace with the Byzantines. Bohemond returned to Antioch, where he had made himself king, or prince rather, and paid tribute to the Byzantines and said he'd hand over all his lands when he died. Shockingly enough, though, when he died three years later, eh, his successor decided not to hand everything over to the Byzantines. But Emperor Alexios Komnenos had bigger problems. And in spite of being 60 years old, he led an invasion of Seljuk lands in Anatolia, defeating an army and seeing two of his sons killed in battle. Now, he would have been poised at this moment to retake even more of Anatolia, but the old emperor finally died that year. His son then took over and helped secure the Byzantine position in Anatolia. But just at this moment, there was another Pechenig invasion from north of the Danube. Still, they were utterly defeated by the Byzantines, further cementing their end as a powerful steppe people of the era. Now, without missing much of a beat, the Hungarians invaded and raided deep into Byzantine territory. The Byzantines counterattacked and won a stunning victory on the Danube, extending their territory all the way up to Vojvodina, which is now in northern Serbia. The Hungarians again, a few years later, invaded and were again defeated. So it seemed that this new northern border was going to stay where it is for now. Now, while all this had been going on, the Seljuks had been retaking territory in Anatolia. So, with the Hungarians taken care of, the Byzantines turned around and headed in that direction. They successfully retook much territory, only to lose it the moment they returned to Constantinople. It seemed their sort of grip on anything in Anatolia was becoming more and more tenuous. Next, the Byzantines invaded territory closer to Syria in an attempt to bring the small crusader states in that area under their control. It worked, and they eventually got all of them to submit to the emperor. The Byzantines then joined forces with those crusader states to attempt an invasion even deeper into Syria, taking more cities. During this time, the Byzantine emperor John was seemingly without any end to his energy. He was organizing campaigns from Sicily to Armenia to Georgia. It was working, and the empire was slowly making gains in nearly every direction. That is, until John was killed in a hunting accident, and his son Manuel took the throne. Manuel had just as much energy as his father, and rushed all over the Near East, leading campaigns and defending the frontier. Around this time, a second crusade was organized. Once again, this crusade was somewhat hostile to the Byzantines and in a foul mood. There was some fighting between the two Christian forces, the Crusaders and the Byzantines, but ultimately they got across the Bosphorus only to be defeated by the Seljuks and forced to wait for more Crusaders to help them. At the same time, the Normans were doing what Normans do and invading the Balkans again. So Emperor Manuel couldn't really support the Crusaders very much because he was busy dealing with the Normans who were using their ships to this time, instead of going overland, attack Byzantine cities all around the Aegean, even making a sort of token attack on Constantinople. Still, their attacks eventually fizzled out. 
Meanwhile, the Crusaders actually won several victory, victories against the Seljuks as they made their way to Jerusalem, once they rejoined the rest of their forces. However, the resulting confidence only made it easier for the Seljuks to then ambush the Crusaders and inflict massive damage. By the time the Crusaders did reach Antioch, there were a few of them left. Still, what forces that existed by this time decided that instead of heading to Jerusalem, they would set off to retake the city of Edessa in Syria. But that attack quickly fell apart. And while all this had been going on, there was yet another Serbian rebellion in the Balkans to deal with. The Normans were now trying to undermine the Byzantines in any way possible, and did so by invading Cyprus. But in doing so, they massively overplayed their hand, and after devastating that island, they realized that they were extremely vulnerable and were forced to sort of beg for forgiveness from the Byzantines. A few years later, the Byzantines crushed the Hungarians and again reasserted their control over the Balkans. Manuel then, in a coordinated joint attack with the Kingdom of Jerusalem, invaded Egypt. But the planning was so awful that the attack petered out almost immediately and went nowhere. Manuel then decided to instead try to take the Seljuk capital of Konya, but was ambushed along the way and had to abandon the attack. By now, Emperor Manuel was an old man, still brimming with energy and attempting to expand the empire in every direction, but he just couldn't sustain it forever. It was beginning to exhaust the Byzantine Empire, all this war, all the rebellions. And so next time, in more of a recap, we'll see how two Bulgarian brothers will take advantage of all this exhaustion and found the Second Bulgarian Empire. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check us out in all the usual places. Facebook, you can subscribe on SoundCloud. Just you know, check out the website. There's always cool maps and images for every single uh, episode. If you've never looked, there's lots of good stuff there. And uh, feel free to get in touch. So, as always, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>